0: All right. Good evening, everybody. So today we are coming to talk about uh, question 14. I don't know if you have your books with you. They have our catechisms in it. But today the catechism is uh, What are God's works of providence? If we have those, can we kind of say those together? The answer God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. All right. So as we start talking about that today, can we turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17? And we're going to go to Acts 17, starting at 22 to 28. So get there. We all there? Kind of close everybody a little bit? All right, I'll just read it. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. And that's the reading of God's word. So I'm not sure if when you read the answers to this catechism question, that Acts, 15, Acts 17 is the first passage that pops into your head. As a matter of fact, it wasn't listed in our book. It's not listed as one of our verses in the question at all. But this passage perfectly lays out a series of the catechism questions that we are seeking to express. We must remember that this particular question is actually a part of a bigger question. How does God execute his decrees? And I don't know if we remember the answers to that question. But God executes his decrees in the works of creation. <clears throat> what is the first thing the apostle, well, is creation and providence, but we're going to do it. So what is the first thing the apostle Paul says as he moves into his introduction of the unknown God? The God of the world who made everything in it. And Paul doesn't just say that God created the world and all things, but he is Lord over, it. being Lord over heaven and earth. Then he moves right into the creator, the creator creature divide that Kessner talked about a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Paul says he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what what part of God is holy? So what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, God's holy holiness definitely includes his perfection, as Matthew says in Matthew five, chapter 48. I mean, Matthew five, verse 48. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. As well, it includes his righteousness. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And most importantly, his set of partners, which is his otherliness, his, his highness, as stated in Isaiah 57, 16. For thus says the, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high place, in the holy place. So while it's not clearly stated, it is implied. The point Paul is saying is not merely to express that God does not need anyone, but rather Paul is asserting God's superiority over man. Not only man who built these temples, Paul is proclaiming God's superiority over, uh, sorry, you guys, superiority over these Greco-Roman gods who reside in these temples. And not only his superiority, but the fact that he is altogether different. He's other than these puny gods. So I don't know how many of you guys grew up and probably a lot of you guys around my age, who grew up watching the X-Men cartoon in the 90s. This series had a villain that would show up named Apocalypse. Now Apocalypse was actually supposed to be, actually a being behind some of these ancient guys that we're talking about. He was a shape-shifter. And in one episode, he disguised himself as a leader of an anti-mutant group named uh, Humanity Against Mutants. And then in an encounter, it was found out that Apocalypse was actually a mutant. And to his shocking dismay, Senator Kelly, <clears throat> he shouted, you are one of them. But Apocalypse respond, responded in a line that was really iconic that I think of whenever I think of Apocalypse. He said, I am as far beyond mutants as mutants are beyond you. So what's my point other than being able to talk about the 90s X-Men cartoon, which was probably one of the greatest cartoons ever? My point is, I see Paul saying something similar in this spot. He's saying that the guys that you see as superior and wise, so much so that you make temples and statues and worship in honor of them and present lofty ideas that you claim come from them. This unknown God, the Lord over heaven and earth, is far beyond them as you think they are above you and more. This unknown God is altogether holy in and of himself. Therefore, his works are holy also. It is he that in his wisdom has created man and in his divine providence has placed man within his determined nations, in his determined boundaries. And he did this in order that man may feel their way. Towards him. So why don't they? So we'll get to that. But in this passage, we see the intimate relationship between providence and creation as God works out his decrees in time. God is the no creation is the object of God's decrees, and providence is the mover of that object. So basically, providence is what is pushing creation forward in history. Providence is thereby the agency that God is using in his divine wisdom to work in creation, to exercise his decrees, which is his will. Just as a water carving a path through the earth to form a beautiful river, providence is flowing through God's creation to form a beautiful story, to glorify the Son and bring redemption to his people. As an example of this beautiful storytelling shows up in one theme that stands out to me so beautifully. This is the second son motif that we see throughout the Old Testament. I'm thinking about the book of Genesis in particular. We see it with God's choosing of Abel, accepting his sacrifice and rejecting the firstborn kings. We see it with God choosing Isaac over Ishmael, even calling Isaac Abraham's only son, whom you love, before he would call Abraham to sacrifice this only son whom you love. Again, we see it in the birth of Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob the second, and the Lord telling Rebekah, the, the older will serve the younger. And while there are many more examples to show, but I think these points, these points show that what I'm trying to prove. Uh, Providence is painting a beautiful story showing how the last Adam, Christ, the second man is far superior to the first man, Adam. We see this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47. As we can see, it is Christ who made the acceptable sacrifice while Adams was rejected. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. It was Christ, the only son, whom the father loves, John 1, 18. And it was Christ who rules over a creation that should have been Adams to rule, Matthew 28, 18. This, this just blows my mind that God has painted these pictures with actual human history. These are not Aesop's fables. These really happen in order to, point, to paint a picture of and point us to Christ, who really also lived. I say this because I think sometimes we can get lost in the technicalities of our of our theological jargon and debates. It's easy to lose sight of the historicity of these events as we begin talking about things like types of shadows and how these things show the anti-type. At least I can be guilty of it. losing sight of the sovereignty of God in all of the beauty of the story. But the re- but the reality is you can't have one without the other. History is painted by the hand of God's sovereignty, and providence is his paintbrush. You can't help but see the connection between God's sovereignty and his divine providence. Actually, there is no providence apart from God's sovereignty. The two are so intimately connected that it's easy to confuse the two. John Piper really helped me to unconfuse this in the difference when he was talking in, a, in his podcast, as Dr. John, when he said, God's sovereignty It's his power and rule to do all things. But his providence is God's wisdom in exercising that rule. Now, to the looking eye, these beautiful paintings become clear that they are pointing to Christ. At least to someone with the full story at hand. But God's providence doesn't only govern these things that are glaring pictures and types. God, by his providence, is also governing the mundane, everyday things as well uh, listen to what God says to Job: who shut up who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed so not only does he determine the boundaries of man but the sea also in Matthew, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. And in the verse before, he even tells us that God has numbered all the hairs of our head. Even our heights are governed. Uh, which of you by worrying can add to his can add one cubit to his statue? Matthew 6, 27. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In this, we see the wisdom, power, and preserving of God's ordinary providence by which he upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, as stated in the 1689. This, according to the nature of second or secondary causes, states, God arranges all things to occur, either of necessity, freely, or in response to other causes. God being the first or primary cause. What does the confessions mean by primary and secondary causes? J. Maitram J. Gresham states it this way. The theologians, speaking of those forces, truly operating in the world as secondary causes, God is the first cause. But the forces of nature and free actions of personal being whom God created are second causes. And it is extremely important if we would be true to the Bible that the existence of secondary causes should not be denied. Did that help? All right. I I must admit that I I cut the quote in order to make the statement a bit confusing so we could work out a few of the details. In the meantime, what we see is God being the first cause of all things. He is the sovereign creator. We don't have a problem with that, do we? I mean, we've already established that he is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So what is this talk about free actions? If God is sovereign, can man be free? No one has ever had this conversation before, have you? And and I'm not talking about with the local Arminian. I'm talking about with other Catholics. Sam Waldron, in the exposition of the 1699 Baptist Confession, states the confessions affirm both the absolute sovereignty of God and the reality of human freedom, denying or mitigating either truth, and Calvinistic Christianity will wither and die. Thus, there are two rationalistic extremes which kills biblical Calvinism wherever they arise. The first extreme he points out is this: the minimizing or denial of the reality of human freedom in the interest of preserving the sovereignty of God. The second is the minimizing of God's sovereignty to preserve human freedom. To the first, he concludes, will lead to a rigid hyper-Calvinism and, so to speak, freeze the water of life. And to the second, this will lead to Arminianism and to the evaporation of the water of life. So how do we keep the water of life flowing? by having balance and a proper view of God's sovereignty, Waldron, in summarizing Cornelius Til on the proper balance states, God's freedom and man's freedom does not conflict. Neither has to be limited in order to preserve room for the other. Man's freedom is not God's freedom. Human freedom does not challenge divine freedom, but coexists with it. Therefore, the same event may be both the result of man's human freedom and the determination of the divine sovereignty. And by maybe, Vantio doesn't mean it's a possibility, but rather it is by permission of or account of both, which leads me back to Maitre. Maitre continues in his understanding on the primary and secondary causes by saying this, it is important to observe that the two causes are not on the same plane. They are not equal but one is completely subordinate to the other. In every event, the natural world, God has completely accomplished what he willed to accomplish. He is not limited in any way by the forces of nature or by the free actions of his creatures. They act truly, but they truly act only as he has determined they should act. The correct way, therefore, expressing the relation between second causes and God the great first cause is to say that god makes us makes use of second causes to accomplish what is in accordance with his eternal purpose second causes are not independent forces that whose cooperation he needs but they are meant they are means that he employs exactly as he wills now wait a minute didn't i just take back everything that i just said a minute ago because it definitely sounds like it. Second causes are not independent forces whose cooperation he needs, but they are means that he employs exactly as he wills. It sure sounds like some hyper-Calvinist ice water to me. What happened to the coexisting parts? So hold up, let's let's bring it back a notch. How can we make sense of this without going against the principles that we have laid down? Well, I believe the answer lies in this one sentence by Maitre. It is important to observe that the two causes are not on the same plane. And I will I will use the illustration that I picked up from Doug Wilson, Pastor Wilson, in describing how most people view the sovereignty of God. He says, we see reality as a huge ocean, and God being the biggest whale in the ocean. We humans are like plankton being pushed around by the current caused by this giant whale. Now, this example would be to put God in the same plane confining God to our creaturely reality. With God operating in the same plane, it would be impossible for both God's sovereignty and human freedom to coexist. As the more powerful being God becomes a schoolyard bully imposing on your freedom in order to exercise his divine providence. But we do not operate in the same plane. He is not the biggest whale in the ocean. He is the creator of the ocean and by necessity exists outside the ocean. It is this reason that God can execute his predetermined plan by leaving man's freedom intact. So, I want to state that there is still mystery here, but hopefully that brings a little clarity. Also, to be clear, this freedom of man's is is a creaturely freedom. It's a governed freedom. Man is not autonomous. He does not have a libertarian free will. As a matter of fact, his will is enslaved to sin. But this does not stop him from truly acting. Man's free, man freely acts, but those free acts are according to his will and of his nature. So let's try to work this out and hopefully it comes to make sense. Man is free to choose. When a man asks a woman what she wants to eat, she is actually free to choose. Though you wouldn't know this since she always says, I don't don't know. So maybe that's a bad example, but I think you get the point. You are free to choose chocolate or vanilla. You are free to obey the speed limit, and you are free to cuss the person out that cuts you off in traffic. But You are free to say, yeah, I chose cookies and cream ice cream, but I meant the cookies and cream with the Oreos. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I think about even choosing. You know, growing up, you know, we weren't really free to choose if we listened to Luther Vandross. But we were free to choose if we would grow up to be a bad boy who creeped or that we would make a house a home. So we have the the choice. We have a free choice. So what we what we are not able to choose is righteousness. Apart from regeneration, you are not free to choose to please God. Romans 8, 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But before that, verse seven says the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Romans 5:10 causes enemies of God. Romans 1:30 causes haters of God. So before we start lobbying complaints at God and His unfairness, please consider this: not only are you unable, but you are unwilling. And I'll go a step further: you are unable because you are unwilling. We are rebels to a holy God. This is why men don't feel their way towards God, even though. This is why God made them, as Acts 17 tells us. Man, instead of groping for God and his glory, he is groping for his own vainglory, his own prestige and his own greatness. But God uses this for his own purposes as well, to bring about his predetermined plan. We see this in the story of Joseph as God uses the wickedness of Joseph's brothers to put Joseph exactly where he needed to be in order to preserve God's people. If we could, can we turn to Genesis 50? I'm going to read from uh, 15 to 21. God reads this. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that he, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this commandment before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God. of your father father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him spoke when they spoke to him his brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but Joseph said to them do not fear for I am in the place of God as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today so do not fear I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he can com- he can com- he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, the God did God's bro- did God make Joseph's brothers hate him and sell him into the Ishmaelites? Well, again, God is the first cause, but He is not culpable because Joseph's brothers acted freely according to their own will and their intentions. God did not make the brothers hate Joseph. As we see in Genesis 37, 4, it says when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. But God was not reacting to what the brothers did. While Genesis 50 states the brothers intentions, it likewise states God's intentions as well. You meant evil. God meant good. Joseph didn't say, God, use your evil for good. No. God and his divine providence had an intention from the very beginning. So if we can, again, look at Isaiah 10, 5 through 8. Woe to the Assyrians, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hand is my fury against a godless nation. I send him and against the people of my wrath. I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mire of the street. But he does not so intend. His heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations. Not a few. For he says. Are not my commanders all kings? So here again, we see two intentions of the same event God's judgment of his people and the Assyrians, the king of Assyria's greed and arrogance. Now, did God make the king of Assyria act arrogantly in his conquest of world domination? In first causes only, God calls Assyria the rod of my anger, going as far as saying in verse 15, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it or a saw magnify itself against him who wields it as if a rod should wield as if a rod should wield him who lifts it? God is clearly acting. But look at what he says to the king of Assyria. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. The king of the king of Assyria is not on some holy crusade for the Lord of hosts. No. He is out for conquest and vainglory. God does not have to make this man do anything. He is acting freely in his own wickedness of greed and arrogance. Listen to his arrogance. Are not all my commanders kings? This is not a compliment to his commanders. He is essentially calling himself the king of kings as if he was God. We see it further in his speech as he continues. By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Therefore, God not only uses the king of Assyria as his rod of anger, but he will punish his wickedness as well. We see in verse 12, he says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, And on Jerusalem, he will punish the speak of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful eye, the boastful look in his eye. And lastly, as we see God's providence in the death of his son and the wickedness of man, if we can turn to Acts chapter two, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So while Peter understands that this is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Something that the NSB calls the predetermined plan and the NIV calls it God's deliberate plan. The Greek word here literally means what is defined, marked out or bounded as to mark out out or define the boundaries of a field. And this marking out is God's doing. But Peter also states you crucified and killed. Why? Because they were lawless men. Again, God did not make these men crucify Jesus. They hated Jesus. As a matter of fact, they hated Jesus so much that in John 12, it says, they made plans. I'm sorry. They made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because, on account of him, many Jews were going out and believing in Jesus. So, Jesus raised this man from the dead after four days in the grave. And instead of honor and praise that he deserved, these men wanted to kill him. And not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus too. So again, God's intentions were for the good of his people, and man's intention was wicked. So, why talk about providence if it's already discerned? It is not like we can shake our responsibility or blame God of our wickedness. So why do we even care? Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And the answer is we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and father, that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So while this is a huge topic, we know because John Piper just wrote a 750 page book and we already have myriad systematic theologies. I mean, Paul sent me a few, too. Um, This subject, we could spend a lifetime studying. I didn't even talk about how God ordains means as well as ends or how our actions actually matter in time and how they affect the blessings and the negative sanctions back there. (laughs) Why we pray and so forth, (laughs) there's just so much. But let me close with this from the 1689 London's Baptist Confession of Faith. It's paragraph seven. As the providence of God does in general reach all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereafter. Now, let me simplify that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, Because we know for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He is working out His providence for the good and care of His bride, the Church. So, as we go forth and think about these things, I pray in our response. No, I pray that our response is that of the Apostle Paul, after considering how God has been so gracious to His Church and His divine providence, and His plan to continue in His gracious providence in order to draw the nations to His holy mountain, even bringing Israel back again. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom! And the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and ins- inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For no, for for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever. Amen.